It's Thursday, December 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. As we wait for the emergency use authorization here in the U.S. for the Pfizer vaccine, all eyes are on the U.K. with their program, and many were alarmed when two British people had allergic reactions to the vaccine. It prompted British officials to advise those with serious allergies to avoid getting vaccinated for now. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for the latest as the Pfizer vaccine continues its rollout. Next, masks have been a point of contention since the beginning of the pandemic, and recent headlines about the benefits of mask wearing have not helped either. A recent study out of Denmark says that there's no benefit to mask wearing, but the devil is in the details. The study was centered around the public messaging of mask wearing, not the actual benefit in blocking the virus. Noah Haver, contributor to Wired, joins us for why studies about mask wearing are so difficult to conduct. Finally, we'll tell you about Molly, the record holder for the longest frozen embryo known to have come to birth. Molly Gibson was frozen as an embryo 27 years ago, and thanks to the National Embryo Donation Center and Embryo Adoption, Molly was brought into this world healthy and thriving. Marissa Ayati, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more on this record-holding baby. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Even last evening, we were looking at two case reports of allergic reactions. We know from the uh, very extensive clinical trials that this wasn't a feature, but if we need to strengthen our advice now that we've had this experience. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks so much for having me. wanted to talk about what's going on in the UK. They started their rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine, and then uh, all of a sudden they got two people with severe allergies that apparently had an allergic reaction to the Pfizer vaccine there. This prompted the health authorities there to basically say, if you have any type of severe allergies, you shouldn't be taking this vaccine, at least for now. So Karen, what do we know about these uh, allergic reactions that we saw? Right. So they were in two people who had had previous severe allergic reactions. Both of them carry an EpiPen with them so that if they go into shock, they can shoot themselves in the leg and get some epinephrine to recover. So it's not clear whether they have had previous reactions to vaccines. Until yesterday in the UK, people were told if they'd had a previous reaction to a vaccine not to get this one. But now as of today, they're saying if you've had a previous severe reaction to anything, if you, if you carry an EpiPen with you, that you should not get this vaccine. In the U.S., Pfizer did not specifically test people who had severe previous reactions, and it's not clear whether the regulators who are meeting tomorrow to discuss it, how they will require people to take this vaccine, whether they will specify that people with severe allergic reactions should be covered or not. And that's the distinction right there, at least in the UK for now, is that if you're carrying an EpiPen, you shouldn't be taking this, right? Because they say people with severe allergies, well, you know, sometimes I get severe allergies when uh, you get around a lot of dust or something like that. But this is something where you need an EpiPen, something that requires a lot of action, people that have a history of it, let's say. This is not, you know, a sneezing fit in the face of some dust. This is a really severe, somebody who's had a previous quite severe reaction and carries an EpiPen with them. In the U.S., I believe that figure is three or four million people. So it's not negligible, but it's also not not as common as seasonal allergies or whatever. And we've talked about the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine before many times. They're made from mRNA. And uh, these types of vaccines don't have any, uh, you know, animal elements to it or anything like that. So as you mentioned, sometimes people in the past have been allergic to certain vaccines, but 
this technically, we don't know exactly, right, shouldn't have been a problem with these vaccines. That's what I had been told before. As you say, they're not made in eggs like the flu vaccine often is. They don't have preservatives in them. So they were expected to be less reactive for people who have allergies. Obviously, this changes that situation. It's not clear, again, what will happen going forward. I talked to somebody today who says the vaccine should be approved for everybody and then we'll just see what happens and that the company should track reactions as they occur and see how common they are. Let's say this could have been something that was maybe caught in a longer type of clinical trial setting or something. I noted in your article that uh, I guess four people in the trials who received this vaccine also developed Bell's palsy. They don't know if that was by chance or because of the vaccine at all. Right. So there are always reactions to vaccines. Any medication causes some side effects. So they expected to see something. They did not see any super severe reactions. Nobody died. Nobody ended up in the hospital in the U.S. trials. But they did see a couple of unusual situations. These cases of Bell's palsy, which is a neurological condition, could have happened by chance or they could have been caused by the vaccine. Again, this is why regulators will probably most likely ask the companies to follow people for some period of time after the vaccine is authorized to make sure that these aren't cropping up more than they should be in the general population. And as we expand from the Pfizer vaccine had 40,000 people and 44,000 people in it, half of whom got the active vaccine and half who got the placebo. So we know there aren't common serious reactions, but there are probably some uncommon serious reactions that will happen as these vaccines are rolled out to hundreds of thousands, millions of people around the world. The UK is moving pretty fast. Obviously, thousands of people have already gotten the vaccine since it started being distributed right. on Tuesday. I mean, these are only two examples of a, of a bad reaction to this. That's not terrible. That's not a bad number, right? You are correct. It's, again, to be expected that some people will have reactions and people who have had previous serious reactions should be careful. But for the rest of us, the safety profile is extremely good. All right. Well, we're on our way in the United States to get this thing approved also. So hopefully, you know, that will get started. And I know, you know, everybody's already ready, you know, uh, vaccine shipments on planes ready to ship out as soon as things are are approved. So uh, that's the next step here in the United States. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. I'm going to ask for a masking plan. Everyone for the first hundred days of my administration to wear a mask. It will start with my signing an order on day one to require masks where I can under the law, like federal buildings, interstate travel on planes, trains, and buses. Joining us now is Noah Haber, contributor to Wired and a postdoctoral fellow at the Meta Research Innovation Center at Stanford University. Thanks for joining us, Noah. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about masks. It's been a big point of contention for a long time since the start of the pandemic. You know, at first we know how messy the rollout was. Don't wear a mask, then you should wear a mask. And it's really created this whole mess and been really politicized as well. President-elect Joe Biden has said that he's going to ask Americans to wear a mask for the first 100 days of his presidency. So we'll see how all that rollout goes. But you wrote an article about what the studies say about mask wearing. And really the quote from your article was that the impact of masks is not just unknown, it's unknowable. And a lot of it has to do with how studies are organized. And I mean, it's just really hard. And we saw a study a few weeks ago, there was a headline basically saying a landmark study in Denmark says there's 
no significant effect for mask wearers. So Noah, tell us a little bit about what we know. How effective can they be? One of the big problems here in all of this is that studying these things is astoundingly difficult. It is very, very hard to nail down exactly how effective masks are. There are all sorts of ways that you can start to consider this. So you might think about the individual level. How much does wearing a mask protect me from others? How much does a mask protect others from me? And then when you start going out a little bit, you might think about you know small communities. You might think in which masks people might be induced to wear masks, like different uh, mask orders or mandates or other sorts of ways that to encourage people to wear masks. And all of these things put together make just what sounds like a very simple question, are masks effective, really, really complicated. And on top of that being just a complicated question, just to nail down what the question is, studying it is astoundingly complicated. And trying to figure out exactly what is going on gets uh, really, really complicated very quickly, maybe to the point where the effectiveness of masks is an unknowable. And that's probably a position we're often in in science, perhaps a lot more than we're used to talking about. One of the ways you can think about this is if you want to think about, you know, how effective were the mask orders in the spring, you have to keep in mind that in the spring, everything's going on. We had mask orders, we had stay-at-home orders, and we had huge behavioral changes. We still didn't know where we could get toilet paper. I mean, there was all kinds of stuff that was going on, and all of that is happening in the case of an infectious disease pandemic. And infectious diseases are complicated and weird and like to move around all on their own. So, you know, there's a limited amount of information we can learn from from the mask orders, particularly in the spring. Maybe now that fewer things are going on, we can start to learn some new things from those. I want to be very clear. You know, the guidance says to wear masks. I wear a mask. I think logically it makes sense to protect you from virus particles and droplets and things like that. So people should be wearing their masks just to help out in conjunction with social distancing, the whole nine. But kind of back to that study that I mentioned and to your point of, about how difficult it is to single out just how effective mask wearing is, in that study from Denmark, you know, it was really more about the messaging of mask wearing more so than the effectiveness of wearing the masks themselves. The study you're referring to is often called the Dan Mask Study. What they effectively did is instead of randomizing people to wear masks versus not wear masks, which is ideally what you'd like to do if you wanted to measure the impact of mask wearing itself, they randomized people to either receiving messages about wearing masks, so encouraging you to wear masks, lots of box uh, free masks, versus effectively nothing at all. And one of the tough things to do here that I have to overcome is when you have a messaging trial like this, there's two steps in between. There's the messaging has to change your masking behavior, and the masking has to change your infection likelihood or probabilities, right? We know that not everybody in the messaging arm is going to wear their masks, and people in the non-messaging arm are also likely to not wear masks. And so you have this sort of diluted effect at the end of the day. Then there, on top of that, there are all kinds of other issues in this trial. So there are things like, uh, so one huge one is they didn't measure source control because they probably couldn't. It means that they could not measure the impact of the person wearing masks on other people, the likelihood of infecting somebody else. They could only really measure uh, personal protective effects for the people that they enrolled. And that's only sort of probably a fraction of the, the total effect of masks in general. But there are, you know, there are a host of others that made this, uh, this trial particularly challenging. They didn't have enough people probably to start with, even had things gone a little bit better in terms of availability of people and cases and so on. And on top of that, it just happened that Denmark had a much lower 
spread of the virus throughout their population during the time of this trial. And when all of this is put together, would in effect, you basically guarantee the result before you already started. You've effectively doomed this to what we call non-significance, which does not mean that there was no effect. And that's the point. You know, strong evidence is really hard to come by at that point. So the effect is, well, it has no effect. You know, it doesn't matter one way or the other. Last question I have then would be, how do we design a study that would really measure the accuracy of it? And I know that <laughs> I know it's going to be it's so difficult to actually do it. It might not be worth it even. But but how would you design a study like that? That's a tough question. There might actually be a study that gets close. It depends on what question you're trying to ask. Are you trying to ask what is the impact of a policy, right? In which case, you have to randomize policymakers to making you know your, their decisions for them, which is really tough to do. If you've ever you know talked to school board members and so on to see if they can get a school to randomize wearing masks and ordering masks or not, that's that's a really hard thing to do. So you'd really want something at the population and the cluster level so that you could measure the population spread and so on. But even then, you get into issues of can you take those results from that study and can you apply them to a different mask order and so on? One of the really tough things here is that you can't design a perfect study. And it may very well be that you can't even design a study that we would consider very good. At the end of the day, this is just an astoundingly hard question. And we can yeah. put this to get some of the pieces here through bits and pieces, but we're probably never going to get a really solid, robust answer. Noah Haber, contributor to Wired and postdoctoral fellow at the Meta Research Innovation Center at Stanford University. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I guess if you had asked me five years ago if I would have two beautiful girls that um, I actually gave birth to, I would have told you you were crazy. There's options out there and that this too shall pass. Joining us now is Marissa Ayati, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Marissa. Sure. Thanks for having me. We all need a good story considering all the stuff that we're going through right now. And this is actually a very, very cute story. Uh, it has to do with some interesting science as well. There's a Tennessee baby born from an embryo that was frozen for 27 years. And this has set the uh, new known record for the longest frozen embryo to ever to come to birth. This family actually had set two records before this baby's older sister was the winner for that before that at 24 years old that that embryo was frozen for. So, Marissa, tell us a little bit about this family and the new baby that was born. Yeah. So, as you said, Tina and Ben Gibson are a family who live in Knoxville, Tennessee, and they had wanted a baby for about five years and had been considering traditional adoption. Um, ben Gibson has cystic fibrosis, so they figured that they might have some infertility issues and had been thinking about a more traditional adoption where they um, take in a, a child already out in the world. And they told me that they were, in 2016, they were dropping off their dogs with their parents to go on a vacation. And their parent, her, you know, parents had seen on the local news, a story about what's called embryo adoption. And that is where um, somebody who, a couple of the pursues in vitro fertilization has extra embryos that they don't need and those get frozen and somebody else can use them. And so Tina said that they initially weren't really into this idea. It seemed kind of weird to them and foreign, but it stuck in their minds for several months and they eventually went ahead with it. They had uh, their first daughter who is named Emma 
and she came from an embryo that was frozen for 24 years, and now they have this new baby, Molly, and she came from an embryo frozen for 27 years. So um, she, as you said, she beat the, the record held by her sister. Now, the doctors there at the National Embryo Donation Center said there's really no reason why you can't have a baby born from an embryo, embryo even older than that, 30 years, whatever it is. But there is a lot that goes into it. You know, it has to survive the thawing process, the implantation process, obviously. So there are concerns once the embryos do get a little older. Yeah, so I talked with Jeffrey Keenan, who's the medical director at the place where the Gibson family got um, got this, these procedures done, the National Embryo Donation Center. And what he told me is that um, embryos that were frozen more than a decade or so ago, used there were different techniques used to freeze them, less reliable techniques. And so there's a little bit more concern about whether or not they will survive being thawed, but also that once they are thawed, if they survive that process, that there's no reason to think that they will be any less successful once they are implanted in um, in someone's uterus. And they said generally about half of the uh, the transfer, the transfer to to a uterus that get done, do result in live birth. While Molly and her sister are obviously sisters because they came from you know from their, their mother and all, they're actually genetic siblings as well. These two embryos came from the same person. Yeah, yeah. So they, um, the embryos came from the same couple all those years ago, and there were other uh, other embryos that were also frozen at the same time from that same couple. Um, and then when Tina went um, to become pregnant, they implant a couple of embryos in her at once in the hope that one of them will be viable. So in each case, there were um, a couple of embryos from, from this same uh, this same family, and, and they ended up with two daughters who are genetically related. And because the pandemic is ever present in everything right now, when they actually found out that they were pregnant with Molly, the new baby, it was just a few days before everything started shutting down in March. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Tina was saying that by the time they went to their six-week doctor appointment, things were pretty shut down. She couldn't bring her husband, Ben, with her. But that this process and having Molly has been kind of the, the light of the year as everything else seems to be falling apart. So now this kind of brings to the forefront a little bit more embryo adoption. I had never really heard about this before. You know, I knew people would donate them and, and whatnot, but I, I didn't really know that this was kind of an operation like this. So I'm sure a lot of people are going to kind of start maybe thinking about this a little more, exploring this option a little more. You know, it's not like a legal adoption of a baby born in, in the world already, but there's a lot of similarities, I guess, in how the process goes. Yeah, you know, I wasn't too familiar either, what, but um, Dr. Keenan said that it, embryo adoptions account for only about 5% of assisted reproduction in the United States. So it's, it was interesting for, for me to learn about as well and hopefully for our readers. Well, great little story, uh, you know, new, beautiful little baby girl born into the world. Her sister obviously gone through the same process. And, you know, as, as the doctor mentioned, you know, who knows, older embryos could possibly be brought to term as well. I, I mean, it's just a, a very cool little story there. Marissa Ayati, reporter at The Washington Post, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.